This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 111. My name is Arvind, joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. We are, you know, hockey's right upon us. We watched a game last night. It was an exhibition, but it was a game. Yeah, a real live game. So we have a, a lot to discuss. Uh, we'll start with that game just right off the bat. What were your thoughts about the Leafs beating the Habs 4-2 in their exhibition? Well, I enjoyed the part where we won. That's uh, always preferable. With You'd rather win than lose. With I would too. Right. It doesn't mean very much, as you would know. But yeah, you know, it's certainly nice that they turned in what was by and large a pretty decent performance. I don't think that the Leafs did anything to really change the outlook of the team. Not that, again, they should have because it's one exhibition game. But yeah, it was encouraging. I, I liked how um, Ilya Mikhaev looked. You know, this is actually the first game action he's been in since returning from injury where he had uh, a cut to his wrist midway through the season. And he looked great. He scored right off the hop, um, finishing a two-on-one with John Tavares. And it was very exciting and fun. Alexander Kerfoot had uh, a great night. He scored. He also showed up on the second penalty kill unit. It was interesting. That's not something he's really done much up to now. I think I saw someone tweet this where he, he had 17 minutes of PK time all year. Yeah, it was like, it was almost nothing. And the person who kind of suffered by his gain, so to speak, was Pierre Engvall, who has been a good penalty killer at times. Very exciting. He's fast. He scored some memorable uh, shorthanded goals. But Engvall ended up on what was effectively the third penalty kill unit. And the third penalty kill unit, even in a game like last night where Montreal got a whack of power plays, third penalty kill unit is like the edge of being off the roster because he wasn't playing much at even strength. Like he finished with like five minutes of ice time. And now the lineup that we're seeing in practice today, Engvall's not in it. Frederick Gauthier is back at fourth line center and Nick Robertson is currently at third line left wing. Right, so we should actually start with Robertson, because we, we both thought mm-hmm. he's probably not going to get into the actual lineup, but, you know, he'll get the training camp and yada, yada, yada. And it looks like we're going to be wrong, because it seems as though he'll probably get into the lineup at least for game one. Um, mm-hmm. With respect to his game yesterday, I thought he was fine. I, I think he blended in for the most mm-hmm. part. He had a couple good moments, a couple bad moments. He didn't blow me away or anything. Um, but it would be a kind of ridiculous expectation for him to blow us away, you know, right. uh, being 18 years old, right? And in his first glimpse of, of NHL action. We certainly saw some things from him that were kind of as advertised. Yeah. Um, the tenacity and the motor was the most noticeable thing to me. He's not a burner, right? <clears throat> and that's one of the, I guess, kind of unique things about him being a shorter prospect and a scoring shorter prospect. You expect them to all be super fast. He's mm-hmm. not a a speedster but he doesn't stop right like he he really kind of maximizes um the movement options he has available to him at any given moment yeah he is relentless and you like that you like that spirit um you can kind of see an element of the relentlessness that has gotten him as far as he has come you know even appearing in a meaningful nhl game as a second round pick 
in the first year after your draft, that would be a huge achievement. And so it looks like he's on the verge of that. There was an article today by Justin Bourne at Sportsnet talking about why he would be a little reluctant to start Robertson in game one. And it gave me some pause, I have to say. He mentioned just that he saw Robertson getting muscled off the puck and knocked off. And I think analytics-minded people de-emphasize size. You know, there's, there's a real um, preference given for the little guy who scores, and they say, I don't really care about size that much because the bias traditionally in hockey has gone the other way. The big man has to prove he can't play. The little guy has to prove he can. We all know Nick Robertson is going to be a player, I think. But as J- uh, Justin Bourne pointed out, even though he's got an admirable amount of moxie where he gets up and he drives into the play, and if he gets knocked down, he gets back up again, Chumbawamba style, the fact remains is, sometimes he will get taken out of the play for a few critical seconds, and he showed a couple of clips of that happening just because he's still an 18-year-old kid, and he's going up against uh, very large grown athletes in a physical sport. And I don't think that you can hand wave away that problem by just saying it's a different league now and small guys can do whatever. And Bourne differentiated, I think, correctly between uh, players like Mitch Marner, who came in at a young age, and Nick Robertson. And he said Marner kind of operates on the seams. He avoids contact, and he's very good at that because he's so agile. Um, Nick Robertson has almost small dog syndrome where he's like, he wants to drive through as if he's 6'4 and 220. And you gotta love that, but at the same time, it means that he's gonna get into some physical confrontations that he doesn't win sometimes. So, that said, he was fine, as we were saying. He had a nice pass that wound up as an assist. I don't think that he's going to get in there and look totally out of place by any means, which is in and of itself, again, a huge credit to him. But I could see good reasons that you would want to have Pierre Engvall in there at third line left wing. It doesn't look like that's going to be how it goes, but I could certainly see having some doubt about that. Yeah, and for what it's worth, um, that line with Kerfoot, Kapanen, and... Robertson had really, really good possession numbers all night, but mm-hmm. you know it's single game Corsi or expected goals. I, I'm not really staking any claims to that, right? No. Especially in in a in a game that is in such weird circumstances as this one was, right? Coming off what a four month layoff, where a lot of the guys on both teams just want to get their feet wet, and and Robertson justifiably is probably the one guy putting in 110 percent. Exactly. I wanted him to look like the most driven guy on the ice, because he should, and he did. Like, to be clear, like, never any doubt about his effort and him bringing his A-game, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else was doing the same thing. So, yeah. Um, If this is how it goes, I'm willing to say I'll give Sheldon Keefe benefit of the doubt for trying it, because there's a lot that's exciting about him. Mm -hmm. You know, he's... I'm almost certain that he's a better scorer than Pierre Engvall right now. But, yeah, I, you know, I just, I think that there are going to be some drawbacks, and it's so much easier to be patient with the growing pains if this is the first 10 games in October 
as opposed to game one of a best of five. So, yeah. I hope he's ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had uh, some other thoughts. It okay. wouldn't really be um, a proper Back to Excited podcast if I didn't get mad at Tyson Berry. <laughs> <laughs> at least word, once without, without a word of lie i was about to transition by saying so robertson did well who do we think didn't do so well and for me that was tyson berry he can't play defense Which, he just he's he can't he's not good a at a problem because as much as parts of hockey twitter want to call defensemen rovers um they still are the furthest people back most of the time ideally means, you would do some defense yeah you know i don't feel like i'm asking that much I really don't, no. you know? B- Barry has, he had a really, really poor game, in my opinion. And maybe it's just, you know, I'm biased against him at this point because I have, you know, these opinions about his worth as a player and I, I, I maybe I judge him too harshly. I, I, that could absolutely be the case. Mm-hmm. But he just didn't seem to do anything properly last night, right? Like he, he I remember early in the, in the first he either had like an absolutely brutal turnover that resulted in a partial break or, or something similar. And then he got turnstile like five minutes. Yeah. And then even on the power play, and this is like, I normally think he's, he's fine on the power play or fine ish. Mm -hmm. Um, his passing just wasn't very good. Like with setting up, he, he was just passing into people's skates and not their sticks. Right. Yeah. That I'm not so much, I'm not really worried about as a long term thing. Cause Mm -hmm. you know, for all his faults, Tyson Berry is a perfectly good, power play uh quarterback but everything else is yeah it's still a problem yeah i should now because i'm aware that i've sort of taken an evil eye to tyson berry i do want to remark on one thing that i saw him do that i thought was creative and i'm not sure anyone else remembers it because it didn't go anywhere and it didn't really work but uh he was sort of backing out of the zone like, the Leafs were kind of in the process of losing possession. And he quickly got to the puck uh, right inside the blue line at the right point. And he did this little sort of chip shot where he, like, flipped the puck to the left wing in a little sort of lob. And he did this very quickly, put it about 50 feet. And the idea was he was going to get it to a Leaf in a way that kind of put them behind uh, Montreal trying to leave the zone and pressure the defenseman. And it didn't quite work because a Montreal player got to the puck first and the play went the other way and that's that. But he got on the puck and he made like a pretty challenging um, little lob shot with with it in a very short time. And so I'm aware that he has puck skills that most defensemen, that a solid majority of defensemen, do not have. and when he deploys those, there are glimmers where even I can appreciate his game. So I, I want to acknowledge that like, I'm not blind to him having any value. But on the whole, he's not very good. Look, he's, he's been outperformed by Justin Hall this season. And I wasn't screaming to put him on the first pair with Riley over Cody Cece. Which, in and of itself, is kind of dead. Like, it's Cody Cece. So... Yeah, anyway, that was uh that was unfortunate. Um Matthews had a quiet game, I would say. Yeah, I would say his line had a quiet game. And mm. yeah. in a sense that's that's positive. Zach Hyman, I think most his biggest contribution was on the four two goal, the shorthanded one. 
Right. Um, but in a, he was quite anonymous at five on five, which you don't normally see from Zach Hyman because he's normally such a bowling ball that even the the games where he isn't as good, he he makes you know a handful of very noticeable on puck plays. Mm-hmm. Right, where he separates someone from the puck or like wins a pretty obvious board battle. I didn't see much of that last night from him. Nylander and Matthews were like they seemed almost a little disinterested. Probably. Um, and this yeah, is not maybe, the show. Maybe, yeah, maybe they they literally were. I'm not going to worry about them until the actual games. Like in that sense, the two players who I would be kind of most comfortable with being a little underwhelming on this. Uh, exhibition would, would be really any two of the big four where it's like okay look I trust them to be very good right yeah. I'm not I'm not concerned about whether any of those four are going to quote unquote show up some of them might not get the bounces and you know we'll narrativize about that after the fact I'm sure but mm-hmm. generally speaking I, I trust them to be you know the best players I'd agree with that and uh, that probably ties into my opinion of Mitch Marner he just didn't look quite connected Oh, really? I, I, yeah. I thought Mitch Marner was very good. Really? I'm yeah. thinking primarily of on the power play, well, which I mean, power is play sort of his bread and butter. The power play sucked. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, and so maybe that stood out in my mind. Now, his line at 5-on-5 five five did quite well. Yeah. So, point taken there. Um, I, I guess I'm just accustomed to Mitch being, like, very on point uh, on the power play, being very, very effective. And I wasn't seeing that as much. I have to acknowledge, though, his line... If they perform as a collective like they did at 5-on-5, five five, we're fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And at any rate, I-, I would say, as you were saying, these players, we know what they are. And we're not super concerned about that. Uh, the complaints about Tyson Berry are also because I know what he is. Like, I'm not knocking anyone who didn't have the greatest showing in this game. Um, it was a tune-up. It was good. You know, we, shot, we saw some signs of life. They beat a certainly respectable Canadians team. Except on the... <laughs> I should say the Canadians are very respectable 5-on-5 five five and even good. They're on the power play, on five, really. their power play is fucking garbage. It's, it's so bad! It's been the same thing for like... <laughs> how many years has it been since, since the Subban-Weber trade? Say four years, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been the same thing each of those four years. Yep. It has. It's been atrocious. And, yeah, in the last three years, I believe, they're last in the league in shooting percentage all situations. And partly that's they don't have a lot of great finishers. But also partly it's that the power play is just not well designed. I don't know how they haven't, like, gone bananas firing Kirk Muller or whatever, because it's like something has to give there. Um, It's so obviously dumb on its face that like I don't know just you you look at that power play and it's like okay cool we're setting up for the best possible slap shot from the point mm-hmm. great the best possible slap shot from the point from, from the point is probably worse than just shoving it to Brendan Gallagher and letting him do whatever the fuck he wants yeah exactly it, it, it's like I'm gonna get like the best pistol in the world and everyone else has a rocket launcher like, it's just not how you make an intelligent power play in the 21st century. I'm not saying you can't use the slap shot. There are teams that have shot-heavy defensemen who use them effectively. Carolina did it well with Dougie Hamilton up until his injury. But 
It hasn't worked in Montreal for such a long time now that I don't see that there can be any doubt about that. And they they don't have star players, but they have talented players. Nick Suzuki made a gorgeous pass last night. You know, like, I, like I, I would want to see more of their best forwards than what seems to be them, one, struggling with zone entries, and two, frankly, kind of pissing around at the top of the zone and not seemingly working the puck down in any effective way. Um, that said, it's the Habs, so actually what I want to see is them to keep doing what they're doing, which is not working at all. But, yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah, our, our penalty kill got a lot of work, and uh, Alexander Kerfoot is, as we noted, back in action on that one. Yeah, so all in all, it was encouraging. It probably worth noting, and this is emphasized by the fact that there, were, there was so much time on the penalty kill, but ice times were kept pretty low and even for the most part. Everyone was under 20 minutes overall, except Jake Muzzin, who was barely over. So, yeah, it, it, it was what it was. It was a, an exhibition, looked about as good as we could have hoped, and now it's the real thing. Yep. Um, one last comment before we, we talk more about Columbus, and that mm-hmm. is Freddie Anderson, who I think looked fine. Um, Fine. Yeah. The Habs didn't ask him to do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Columbus probably won't either in a lot of respects. They're not a great offensive team. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, again, we're not reading too much into this. I'm still a little bit worried about Freddie, although it's like, it's a bit, you know, it's like worrying about a super volcano. Like, what can you really do about it? Um. So, yeah, it's just. If he does well, we will be in very good shape. It's a tautology, essentially, right? Yeah. If, if the guy yeah. who, who's primarily responsible for half of the game uh, performs well, then your team is in good shape. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd rather he put in a solid performance like last night than him absolutely combust, right? So of the two yeah. options, this is the most preferable. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go with this then. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. All right, cool. So on to Columbus. Um, so most people probably, you know, familiarize themselves somewhat with Columbus at this point, right? Yeah, um, we've all been reading previews from I, every Leafs site or Leafs entity or Leafs outlet has been doing preview material. So you've probably seen some because I think a lot of our, our listeners are pretty, pretty enthusiastic Leafs fans. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so you had uh, an article on the uh, the Columbus forwards and. Uh, I'll I'll go to bat here and say that the, I thought that that was maybe the best of all the the preview material on them. I thought it was really good. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Do you want to just leave with that? Sure. I'll PayPal you the the fee for for that. <laughs> um. <laughs> no. Uh. Yeah. The Columbus forwards they're interesting because I think most would agree, and I think this is a fair statement that their forwards, when you compare them to the Leafs, it looks like chopped liver really right um i think mm-hmm. the highest scoring player on columbus had 20 goals this year slightly maybe slightly north of 20 goals i think oliver bjorkstrand had a bit north of 20 and then zach Wierenski had exactly 20 and they had you know a handful of people in the teens yeah and i mean on the leafs we had a 47 goal scorer in austin matthews a 31 goal scorer in william nylander and then some other guys named John Tavares and Mitch Marner who were pretty good too. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, from the offensive side of things, 
from the forwards. There, there's really no contest. But Columbus's forwards are, are very, very good defensively as a whole. And they were one of the teams that were significantly injured, even more so than the Leafs. Now, those injuries, a lot of them took, um, took place on the back end. But they also had to shuffle in a lot of kind of random interchangeable forwards. And the depth lines of Columbus are kind of like a zombie horde to me. It's just all these nameless and faceless dudes who you don't recognize, but they're all really, really good at playing Columbus's game, which is that super hard forechecking, super disciplined, never make a mistake, never really try anything, keep it tight system, right? And that's going to be really frustrating to play against. Um, it was very good that we saw Kapanen, Kerfoot, and Robertson do well in, in these uh, in, in the exhibition game because they're going to be faced with a kind of interesting task where Columbus's depth forwards, and these are the guys who primarily that third line is going to match up against, they're not really a threat offensively, but they're also very, very hard to break down. Right? They're, mm-hmm. And especially for someone like Kapanen, who isn't a great offensive player uh, in kind of what I'd call, in, to use a basketball term, in a half-court situation. He's an amazing offensive player in transition because he can just run by people or skate by people in this case. Mm-hmm. But in the half-court, he's not as good. Against a set defense, he's not as good. And, and Columbus kind of makes you go against a set defense as much as possible. Um, so that, that's an interesting challenge. Kerfoot's a talented passer. And Kapanen can finish a bit. Uh, and this is maybe where adding Robertson makes a lot of sense because you provide someone there who can, you know, maybe break open something, right? And also someone who can take medium danger chances and make them a little bit better than medium danger because of how good his shot is. So yeah, that, that was, um, sorry, I just, I thought that that was one of the most um, important points that, that you raised was just that if Columbus is not going to give you high danger chances because they're so good defensively, but you have players who can make medium danger chances pay out, like Austin Matthews and then maybe Nick Roberts, uh, you're in great shape to win the series because you're taking what they give you and you're still scoring more than you're supposed to. Yeah, and, and Kevin Papetti's also kind of commented uh, on that too in his preview at MOHS. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's going to be kind of key. I don't expect the fourth line to really do much damage at all because I, th- I think Columbus is just going to neuter them and that's going to be a grind fest, mm-hmm. right? That third line is going to be important. When we get to the top six, this is where the upside is for the Leafs. Um, Columbus has two very, very interesting forwards that are worth discussing in the context of the series. The first is Nick Felino, who I think is their captain. And Nick Felino is a wonderful defensive player who really can't do a whole lot offensively. So, again, you know, this is an entire theme with Columbus. They have very few legitimately good offensive forwards. I I can say maybe they have two who I'd say are are completely kind of first-line offensive forwards, and then a couple more who are solid middle six in terms of their offensive production. But Felino is not one of them. They rely on him to basically be a stopper. Right? He gets pretty tough usage um, and generally does a very good job of just shutting down offense. He's going to be matched up against one of the top lines. I, Tortorella seem, is 
In a lot of cases, he's a roll four lines guy. I don't know how much that's going to change here. We'll see. But he, it, would be, it would behoove him to put Felino up against the people whose offense you want to uh, suppress, right? You don't want to put Felino up against Freddy Gauthier. Exactly, waste, because Freddy is going to do that for you. So. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, this is another thing with Columbus. Even when they kind of lose matchups in a ratio sense, they don't get blown out in them at 5-on-5. Five five. Mm-hmm. Right? So, that, this is where having someone like Felino is very useful. You can say that, okay, you know, Felino on his own is not going to outscore Austin Matthews, but he can slow Matthews down to the point where they only lose that matchup maybe by a little bit. Right? Or, they, or, you know, lose in kind of a very general sense of they're getting fewer chances then. And then that opens it up for them to get some bounces to go their way. And suddenly you're, you're winning a matchup that you don't have a right to win on talent alone. And that's kind of their entire style boiled down, right? The other player worth noting, um, who's almost certainly their best forward and, in my opinion, their best player is Oliver Bjorkstrand. So... He is a 25-year-old who most wouldn't have heard of, although if you follow the Marlies, uh, you probably remember him absolutely ripping up the Marlies in a couple playoff series, um, you know, a couple, maybe three, four years ago. But he's just a wonderful two-way player. Uh, his 5v5 scoring rate is excellent. The, the turd on the punch bowl for him is, is that he has essentially no power play impact, and, and Columbus in general has a really, really poor power play. Um, mm-hmm. But at 5-on-5, five five, Bjorkstrand is, you know, not out of depth with anyone in this game, in this series. And, and I mean that to include all of the least big four. At 5-on-5, five five, based on this season, he is in their class as, as a player. Yeah, yeah, he's, um, he's much better than I think you might superficially recognize. You know, someone commented on our website and they said, you know, I looked and he's only even hit 40 points once. He's never cleared it. And that's true. It's a combination of... He's been injured, and this was a partial season this year when he was definitely on pace to beat it. And the power play just isn't there. But at 5-on-5, five five, Oliver Bjorkstrand is very good. Really exceptional. Good. Yeah. So he, he's going to be a problem yeah, in the mm-hmm. sense that he, he's going to create issues for whoever he comes up against at 5-on-5. Five five. Um, Columbus switches their lines around a lot. They don't have set combinations within the top six, but basically the big weakness occurs after those two guys, and then also Pierre-Luc Dubois, who, who's a good offensive player, um, who is also, he's not horrific defensively, I don't think, but he's used more offensively by Columbus. Uh, he has kind of a reputation as that two-way center, and his numbers from previous years back that up, but this year he's been used rather more offensively. The problem is, yeah, the people behind them, because Columbus is essentially forced to play either Boone Jenner or Alexander Wenberg as their second-line center. They're both highly, highly underqualified for that role, especially when you kind of match that up with who the Leafs are trotting out on their quote-unquote second line. Yeah, this feels to me like kind of the fulcrum of the series for the Leafs, because the reality is, if you get a matchup where it's, let's say, um, a line of Mikhaev, Tavares, and Marner up against any line centered by Alexander Wenberg, the Tavares line should eat them alive. Like, it should be gruesome and bad what happens to the Alexander Wenberg slash Boone Jenner entity in that circumstance. Um, That's why we're paying them a lot of money. And, yeah, and so if you want to believe in the Leafs in this series, and you should and we do, that's where the Leafs should put up margin. Stupid thing. Yes, and Columbus could potentially combat that by splitting up Felino and Bjorkstrand, their two best defensive forwards, put them, so so you have one against each of the Leafs' top two lines. 
and and that's good. But remember that Felino line probably isn't adding a whole lot of offense, mm-hmm. right? So it, it it's scary for the Leafs, but it's also scary for Columbus, right? It's scary for the Leafs because you can still see a world where they manage to slow these two lines down and get it to kind of a 50-50 game and, and, and go from there. But then from Columbus's point of view, it's scary because kind of your best case scenario is let's slow those lines down, shut down the bottom six entirely, and, you know, try and sneak out some, some, some wins here. Right? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's kind of... Their, their game is trying to limit what the Leafs can do and then hopefully, you know, capitalize with the limited offensive chances that they get. Yeah. In terms of overall, sorry to interrupt, but in terms of overall, like kind of 5v5 XG, the Leafs and Columbus are actually very, very similar. It's just Columbus is much lower event. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, and I think most would argue that, that, that they're punching above their weight when it comes to talent. So this is a system that, that works for them. Right? Um, so what it, it really does come down to the Leafs, you know, being able and, and those star players kind of showing up and not getting slowed down too much by Columbus's style and by those strong defensive players that they have, right? Um, the rumor so far is that they are actually going to put Felino, Pierre-Luc Dubois, and Bjorkstrand on one line, which is probably the, the three best forwards on Columbus. That's their strongest line that they can put out. Um, and that is a good line. But again, that's also not the Pasternak, uh, Bergeron, Marchand line. Right, it, it's, no, not it's not an inevitability. That's like okay. Well, hopefully we can saw off there. Like as as much respect as I have for all three of those players, I still would hope and expect Austin Matthews or John Tavares um, to have a line that could go, that could that could beat them, right? And then the other lines, or the the second line in particular, should be getting demolished. That's mm-hmm. the goal. If you're if you're the least, won't necessarily work out that way because Columbus, you know, has the results they do for a reason. They're really 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 good defensively. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the bottom line for Columbus is somebody is going to have to score goals for them. And this is a team where they have zero players that had more goals than Zach Hyman this year. I love Zach Hyman, but if he has the most goals on your team, that's probably not the greatest sign. Now, as we've said, the team that played is not necessarily the team we're going to see because they were injured all to hell. But somebody has to put the puck in the net at some point, and with their power play sucking so much and uh, i'll talk about that a little bit on the defense and that'll come up again in our uh, takes of the week uh they don't have the obvious recourse to put up a, a bunch of goals that isn't we get some great bounces or the other goalie falls apart knocking aggressively on wood here and so really as impressive as they are at doing what they do they don't have high-end offense they probably have less high-end offense than like any team i can think of in the east right now including the islanders yeah um you know the islanders have matt barzal right and he's a better offensive player in my opinion than anyone that uh the jackens can put up even i would say better than bjork's friend yeah i I think certainly if you include power plays with that yeah yeah and and i do to be clear so yeah so you know you can see it's like it's quite a clash of styles. If if Columbus can't execute their system the way that they've done in the past, I could see this getting surprisingly ugly for them really fast. But 
They've been very good at it all year, despite very adverse circumstances, and, of course, they infamously jumped Tampa, who are a better team than Toronto. Mm -hmm. Now, Columbus was a better team then, too, and I'm referencing your article again, you you wrote about this, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they had Panarin and Duchesne at the time, so that helped. Yeah, if they had Panarin and Duchesne, I mentioned this in the article, if they had Panarin and Duchesne, they might be favorites in the series, because now they have, you know, now they have, first off, a couple elite finishers, Mm -hmm. and... You know, that also, one of the brilliant things about having those great players, well, a couple things. One, they elevate players besides them, right? And two, right. they push everyone down into a role where they're more, like, they're potentially overqualified, right? Like, Nazem Kadri was the world's best third-line center last year. And, mm-hmm. you know, as much as the Leafs were not a success in the end result, they, they had a pretty strong... Um, kind of value proposition as a team that could roll three lines that were always going to, or not always, but were usually going to win their matchups. And, and they did that, right? When they had those three center right-wing combinations of Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, Marner, Kadri, Kapanen, those guys did well, right? And we probably beat Boston if Kadri doesn't get the red mist again. Yeah. And, you know, I know that this is going to sound like a very homerish statement and, you know what, I'm a Leafs fan, so whatever. But the Leafs, I firmly believe have a strong argument that they were the better team at 5-on-5 versus Boston. And, like, they were a strong expected goals team that didn't get great goaltending, and they got killed on special teams. I'm not saying that that delegitimizes the result. You know, Boston won, and that's how it is. But it suggests that the Leafs weren't, like, awful um, by any means. That there was some something that was working for them. Um, so, you know, to, to bring it back around here, I the, like the I can see so many ways for this to go wrong for the Leafs. You can easily map out a scenario in your head where this goes sideways. But the longer I look at it, the more I've started to think, okay, but who do you really believe is the better team here? And that's Toronto. And so that should count for something, I would hope, notwithstanding right. what happened at Tampa. So. Now, the thing is, what overhangs everything here and overhangs everything in every playoff series ever is if there's a massive goaltending differential one way or the other, that decides the series. Period. Yeah, the end. end of. Mm-hmm. Right? That's just how hockey works. Um, Alan actually did some some looking into this, and, and what he found is that basically one-third of series, you can say, swung just from goaltending alone. Mm-hmm. Right? And then there were, I think, another uh, big set of, of uh, series that probably ended earlier than they should have due to goaltending. Right, like mm-hmm. a team wins in five when the teams were actually more evenly matched, uh, at least in terms of carrying play, and one team had a goaltending differential. Uh, and then there's teams, there, there's ones where you know some teams just kind of dominate others, where they have the carrying play advantage and also a goaltending advantage. Yeah, and it's worth noting that as much as we've talked about the magic of the Columbus system and what they did to Tampa Bay, the truth is last year Andre Vasilevsky had a really unimpressive playoffs. And that was that. They were kind of out on their ass in a hurry. And, you know, the the sport is unforgiving in that respect. So, yeah, we have to keep goaltending kind of in the back of our heads. And so hopefully Freddie Anderson plays like the standard good starting goalie that we've generally had and not like the somewhat troubled Freddie Anderson of recent months. Um, Are you good with the forwards? Do you want to talk about the defense? Um, Yeah, Uh, and I I guess... The defense and, and, I guess, special teams. That should be the, the other thing we, yeah. we discussed. So, I mean, you did some looking into the defense. Uh, what did you find out? 
Okay, so Columbus has a number one defenseman that everyone agrees pretty well is a number one defenseman. Or at least most people agree. He's conventionally understood to be this. He was drafted high. He's solid. He plays all situations. His name is Seth Jones. He looks the part. He seems like the kind of guy that solidifies your top pairing forever. It's just the results don't quite back that up. Seth Jones is kind of the mystery of <laughs> defenseman because he seems like in every respect he should be the guy. And the results show a guy who's, you know, pretty good to okay. But not, you know, the kind of franchise stalwart that you would expect based on his reputation. Um, he hasn't had great expected goal results. Prior to this year, he at least looked pretty good defensively. And, you know, I'm willing to entertain the idea that these models, which try to isolate a player impact, they still will sometimes end up blaming defensemen for playing with forwards who can't score that well. But really, the, like, any way you add it up, he hasn't quite had the output that you would hope for. And in the last few, in three of the last four years, his goal results have been better than his expected goals. So maybe he's doing some things that hopefully skew the ice in ways that we're just not capturing. But I find it very hard to know what to make of him and to tell whether he really is undervalued by these metrics or whether he's overvalued in the popular opinion. And I can't do much more than note that that happens. Yeah. Zach, yeah, sorry, was, go ahead. I was just about to say, uh, you can rinse and repeat those last three minutes, but now replace Jones with Horensky. Yeah, pretty well. Now, Zach Horensky, if you're wondering, had more goals than any other defenseman in the NHL this year. Pretty cool, right? Well, I feel like, you know what, no one's going to fall for that setup if they've listened to our podcast long enough, right? Because he's a shot-heavy defenseman. <laughs> you know what I think of those. Wierenski shoots a lot, um, especially on the power play. And while he gets goals, which is neat, the Columbus power play as a whole is kind of ass butt. They're really bad, actually. And I have to tell you, I don't think it's entirely disconnected that Zach Wierenski shoots as much as he does. And Columbus collectively scores as little as it does. The man advantage. Um, that said, he's a talented player, obviously. He's had some great productive seasons uh, in his career. He was a rookie the same year as Austin Matthews. And uh, you might remember he had a terrific point total. He just kind of got overshadowed by Matthews and Patrick Laine in that year, which was a very stacked year for rookies. But he's a talented player, and he and Jones together seem like they kind of should be the bee's knees, uh, given the obvious talent. Like, that's uh, a set-it-and-forget-it top pairing. But again, the results aren't that great. You know, they're just not doing as well as I would expect from how good they should be. And so, your takeaway as a Leafs fan from this is it's a bit mysterious, because Columbus, as much as they should be kind of overpowered, at forward on defense you know by reputation you would expect the best two defensemen in this series are probably Jones and Wierenski before you get to Morgan Riley and yet it hasn't always worked out that way so if you're looking for things to be optimistic about you could say okay these guys maybe can slow the game down but they don't actually help drive play that well Wierenski gets a lot of goals 
but he doesn't form a part of a really productive power play. And the two of them are probably kind of overrated. And maybe Columbus is even a little overrated. Although, as we've said, they do get defensive results as a collective. Yeah, and, and the other defensemen on, on, on this roster who don't have the name pub of either Jones or Wierenski might actually be the people driving the bus more, right? And there we're talking about David Savard and I actually don't know Gavrikov's first name. Vladislav. Vladislav Gavrikov. And I did not know that one week ago. So, yeah, Vladislav Gavrikov, this is his first year. I did not know all that much about him. But he and Savard have formed a very dependable second pairing. Very solid outcomes. Quiet, you know, go to work and uh, do a job well. And the third pairing looks likely to have Ryan Murray, who might have a little bit of name recognition, unlike Savard Gavrikov. Um, Ryan Murray, you may recall, way, way, way back when, was drafted second overall in 2012, which was a really strange draft. And he has never really been able to be healthy almost ever since. And when he plays, he's actually had some stretches with quite good results, sometimes even in tougher usage. But he struggled to stay healthy. He missed a ton of time again this year with injuries. Right now, he's showing up to practice, and he's on the third pair, so we'll expect to see him. Um, yeah, it's hard to know what to make of him, but I would say there aren't too many players on Columbus's top six, their defense group, where you look at them and you think, oh, that guy's not really that great defensively. Maybe Wierenski, but like even Jones, I think, generally has shown he can play defense you know, to at least a pretty respectable degree. Um, whereas, you know, you look at the Leafs and you have a couple of guys where you're like, well, that guy's maybe a bit of a glass cannon. Um, you don't get that impression from the defense. I think if I had to speculate a little bit here, from the system and from the results and from everything I know from reputation, you probably will get fewer uh, brain dead mistakes from the Columbus defense in this series than you'll see from the Leafs. I think the Leafs defense tries more things and sometimes fails more notably. I wouldn't be surprised if the Columbus defense is quieter, so to speak. Again, except for when Wierenski winds up the howitzer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a bit of a survey there of uh, all of them collectively. It's, again, I think John Tortorella honestly does not get enough credit for what he did with this group. Because as you've said, they all look like they can kind of play the system. They don't always have the most talent, but everyone kind of shows up and puts his work hat on and does the job. And that's creditable in a way, especially with a team with less talent. Yeah, and I think to some extent there's a ceiling on this team. Yeah. Because they just can't score, right? They're they're really, really bad at scoring. And, you know, their defense, I think maybe... Maybe the models don't give them as much credit as they should. The the defensive players, I mean, um, mm-hmm. for for you know their strong defensive results. Uh, I I can see that being a possibility. You know, c- certainly you look at this team on the aggregate, their defensive results pop out. Either they're genuinely very very stunning. So I'm comfortable saying that their defense is they're doing something right. Clearly, um, but yeah, th- this team really 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 cannot score. But there's essentially no series where I think anyone is looking forward to playing them. No, they will be a tough out every single time. Right, because 
unless their goaltending collapses, they're just not going to get blown out. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to keep it close. They're going to keep it scrappy. They're, they're going to frustrate you, right? Like at, at, you're going to want your your team to just like, you know, get out of your, your defensive zone with control or attack their zone with control and, you know, set up a, a nice play where you end up with a shot from the slot. And that just doesn't happen, right? They're, yeah. they're, so, they're so structured and conservative and disciplined. Katya had a comment when she, she studied their power play a lot. And it, her, her takeaway was essentially that they seem pathologically afraid to make a mistake. And the power play is the one spot where that does not help you in any way at all. Because, you know, taking a shot in hockey, making a pass in hockey, there's risks associated with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're potentially giving up the puck and you're doing that for what you feel is an improved chance of scoring. Columbus plays so conservatively, even at 5-on-4, that that's part of why their power play is so unambitious and so uninspiring. Um, but everywhere else, it just makes them a right pain in the ass. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I could see this being the kind of team that a coach would love. Yeah. You know, just like a plucky bunch of hard workers, great team spirit, real us against the world kind of mentality. I guarantee you they're thinking about how uh, they're going against the super highly paid stars in the center of the hockey universe. Um, And even though I don't think that anyone is taking them lightly this time around after what happened to Tampa... There's still, I'm sure, a bit of an underdog mentality there that probably serves them well. And I think it's, you know, it's worth remembering. Look, hockey is the kind of game where you can do this and it can work. I remember, you know, in 2014, Team Canada, who were maybe the most dominant team I've ever seen, um, they spent most of a game against Latvia chasing the game down one nothing. Because Latvia scored on one trick play and then played extremely smothering defense and got good goaltending for a long stretch. It can be done. It's a high variance game and one bounce can swing it, especially in a short series. So, yeah. Like, like there are, again, like I've said, there are so many roads to success for Columbus. I just don't think that there are more of them than there are for Toronto. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to mention, Columbus's penalty kill... In their, in their ongoing commitment to really just be good at all the unfun parts of hockey, their penalty mm-hmm. kill is very, very good, too. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, they actually are kind of aggressive and hounding and all that sort of stuff, right? Like, when I say that they're a conservative team, I don't mean that they sit back. Um, they, they, no, are, no. they are, you know, pretty dogged. They're pretty physical. They're not sitting in a shell getting car loud. Um, they do have a... Corsi that's under 50%, but it's not like a 45% the way the Leafs were under Carlisle. It's like mm-hmm. 48% and they make a lot of it back uh, on quality because you just don't get any of it. Um, right. So, yeah, they're, they're, I just want to make that you know distinction uh, between... Because conservative can be an ambiguous term in the context of, of, of a hockey team. Mm-hmm. Alright, so I guess yeah. do you have anything else you want to add to this preview or should we just give our predictions? Yeah, I think uh, I, I've laid it out as, as best I can. So, yeah, I'm ready to go. Okay, go for it. What's your prediction? Leafs in five. Yeah, I mean, predictions are always, frankly, dumb for these things because, you know, yep. there's, 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 a finite, <laughs> there's, so. there's a finite set of possibilities. And 
the distribution between them is pretty flat, especially with no home ice, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, th- I think basically the Leafs are slight favorites. There's essentially no result that would surprise me because if you get surprised by any result in hockey ever, especially after last <laughs> year, then you just haven't watched enough hockey yet. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting Dom Lachishan is projecting these series at the Athletic, and he's laying out probabilities. And, like, to be a really, really heavy favorite in this series is 65-35, which the Leafs aren't going to be. But, like, that means that a third of the time the other team wins. Like, there's... There are no really heavy favorites in any of the qualifiers, and certainly not in this one, which I think is going to be pretty tight. So, yeah, when I like I'm saying Leafs in five, but it could be Columbus in five. It could be Leafs in three. It could be Columbus in three. It's so wide open. So, it really yeah. is. Yeah. So fun times. Playoff hockey, everyone. <laughs> Yay. Oh, yeah. Um, There was a bit of a soap opera that we were going to address, at least in passing uh, out there in the desert. So, uh. John Chaka was the general manager of the Arizona Coyotes for the last few years, and his detractors sometimes called him a poster boy for analytics, and analytics people would say, hang on a minute, we don't endorse the stuff that he's putting out, it's black box, it's not validated by the community, he's not really one of us. Um, I don't know that anyone especially wanted to be associated with what happened in Arizona in the last few years, except someone apparently was intrigued enough that John Chaka got a big job offer. So let me back up. John Chaka apparently went to his new owner, Alex Marulos, and said, hey, I've got this offer from another ownership group. I just want to go talk to them. And Arizona was kind of reluctant, and eventually they said, okay, talk to them. And apparently, John Chaka got a big, fat, enormous offer where he would have made a hell of a lot more money. And in parentheses, I doubt he was all that well paid by GM standards in Arizona. And then he kind of said, look, I want to take it. And Arizona's ownership was very mad. And there was a very awkward period where Cheka clearly had one foot out the door. As the team went back into the playoffs that they had no real business being in. And there was a meeting with pending free agent Taylor Hall is a big deal for that franchise if they can somehow hang on to them, although I, I doubt it. Where Chaco wasn't there. And the owner was there. Um, it like Which is a pretty obvious sign that the general manager is being cut out. And then eventually John Chaco kind of said okay, and then he quit. And then there was a whole lot of extremely bitter recrimination and leaking and mean-spirited things were said through the media. And it's turned into a whole weird map. Your thoughts are? <laughs> it's just weird. It's really weird, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those cases where it's the the the, the spin coming from both sides is really, really, really noticeable. Mm-hmm. And you know, we don't know what happened. Only a handful of people do. So I'm trying very hard to not come to any real judgments. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a weird situation. It, it doesn't make Arizona, the, the, the team, look good because it's just it's yet more turnover in the upper end of their front office. 
Um, so it sucks for them, I suppose. They seem to be committed to, to Cheka. Cheka seemed to be committed to the team. He certainly handed out a lot of long-term contracts there. Yeah, and he had one himself for yeah, a few I more think, years. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I if it's as reported, I do understand the frustration from the owner, where it's like, hey, you know, I thought you were here for the long haul, and then you know, you're just jumping for greener pastures at the same time. You know, they could fire Cheka with no remorse, right? They, they have to pay out the contract, but... Um, you know, I, I can see, you know, the argument for why there shouldn't really be loyalty on his end. So, yeah, it, it's just, just a weird situation. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, you get it from sort of a ruthless business perspective. I have to say, I'm sort of fascinated that someone looked at John Chaka's results with Arizona and was like, you know what? Give that man authority in our organization. Well, and the interesting thing is that, I don't know if this has been debunked, but the rumor was that it was with... um. I think Harris Sports Group, which owned the Devils, the Sixers, and some soccer team. I, I don't know which one. Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace, okay. So that's, that's a Premier League team and, you know, mm-hmm. a decent mid-table team, although their squad is, is quite old. They, they, they need a refresh. They're, they're in danger of going down next year. Anyways, this isn't a soccer pod. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's like a multi-sport group, and it's unclear, you know, what his role would be there, or even if this was that was for that uh organization but yeah it's you know it's curious to me uh i I don't think he's done an amazing job as as coyotes gm granted that's you know one of the tougher jobs in the nhl Uh, i guess Mm -hmm. the rumor that we've seen is that he's very good at managing up i guess Mm -hmm. with the exception of this (laughs) owner um but he (laughs) Not so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the the book on him was that he he's a very very kind of uh, engaging person and very good at kind of communicating across various groups, which gave him I guess more credibility as someone who was considered a quote unquote analytics guy at least by the mainstream people. And was an extremely young general manager. Yeah, yeah, like, he was I, I believe he got the job at twenty six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know, it's very possible that he dazzled. Uh, the Harris Group or whoever else, uh, just with force of personality and supposed business acumen. But it is really fascinating to watch someone who is, again, not really having a ton of success with a franchise that's not having a ton of success and watching him kind of get headhunted and then having the whole thing blow up. I do also want to note as an aside, and this was apparently an opening offer, but they apparently gave Hall an offer of something like five years at seven point two five million per, which is a joke. Um, if that's like a serious offer, even if even in this crazy pandemic world, they are offering him way under market when he's an unrestricted free agent, that will probably be in pretty huge demand. So all of this kind of adds to the aura of dysfunction around the Coyotes right now. And this is a franchise that has never been all that close to being financially viable, that has not been putting a great product on the ice for the last decade. And that is kind of, you know, under a cloud of relocation. And this is putting aside rumors of salary cutting that may be coming in the next few years. So I just thought that was worth noting as kind of a weird days of our lives in the NHL sort of thing. It's very strange, and it will be interesting to see where Arizona goes from here, because 
even given that the NHL has, you know, practically moved heaven and earth, to keep them there, I can't imagine that there is an unlimited tolerance for, like, massive dysfunction when the team just loses money hand over fist. So, anyway, keep an eye on that. Yep. All right, uh, last segment. We have some bad takes. People have been clamoring for them. Not really, but we, we felt <laughs> like being mean. Um, I, I, you know, I feel bad because... Yeah. This, these ones, these are people that we like, that I like, yeah, that I see, admire, see, and they, mm. which in a sense makes this a better segment because we're we're not just picking on like I don't know some dumbass. <laughs> that's that's the thing is unfortunately we're going to be critical of people we think are generally good writers. So I I had one and you had one. Do you want to go first? Uh, you can go ahead. Okay, so uh, this breaks my heart a little bit, you know. There are not that many people who were good writers in the mainstream of the Edmonton media throughout the last few years in terms of being, like, good and intellectually honest and direct about how bad the team was and what they were going through. And Jonathan Willis was kind of the exception. He's a smart guy. He's an honest guy. I find him very likable. He's also willing to look back on his mistakes which I think is very impressive. It's not an easy thing to do for your ego. And it takes um, it takes a lot of guts. And so I think he is um, generally good. But he wrote this article. And it's the headline is Evan Bouchard's AHL debut has him on track to become a number one NHL defense. And, you know, writers don't always pick their headlines, but I'm afraid that that is an accurate one for the thrust of the article. And the article basically has two strands. And one of them is he was drafted high, which is fine. You know, the scouts often get it right. Um, the fact that he's drafted high, I would consider relevant for a little bit. He looks like, you know, a, a decently shaping player. But he's trying to work off AHL statistics, and it's a comparison of points per game based on an age group that cuts off in 2011. We don't get a lot of great stats in the AHL. That's why it's hard to do stats analysis. All the fancy stuff with expected goals and rates and heat maps and all the fun stuff that we get to do in the NHL when we're analyzing players from our, our armchair position, like Arvin and I like to do. Uh, you can't do that in the AHL. You get points and you get plus minus and you don't get a hell of a lot else. But points per game for a defenseman aren't that Right. It's better than nothing. You'd rather get points than not points. Absolutely. And if you're getting a whack of them, that's impressive. But there are a ton of AHL defensemen who put up terrific numbers of points and never do anything. Now, again, it is a little meaningful that Bouchard does this at a younger age than some of his peers because he's playing a lot. He's being trusted by his coaches in that regard. I'm not even saying that Bouchard is not tracking well, but like, just the fact that he got a shit ton of points doesn't mean that much to me for a defenseman. And, it, like, he had, like, a decent amount. He had 36 and 54 games. But it's, like, it's not like he was setting the world on fire. Yeah. And so I just don't think that there is a basis for what he was saying. Well, I think it even gets a bit worse than that because, mm. unless, unless you mentioned this already, but the, the cutoff was 2010-2011. Yeah. There was no one more recent than that. Um, and I, I asked Willis about this, and he said, you know, I, I wanted to have players 
where we had up to their age 27 year in the NHL because that you know that gives you that's when teams you know will have control until for the most part and gives mm-hmm. you a very good sense of the player itself because uh, you have a pretty long NHL sample. Um, but I think it cuts off it ends up cutting off quite a few names that that change this somewhat significantly. I mean, off the top of my head, both Liljegren and Sandine would have appeared on this list at or near the top. They both had... Rasmus Sandin had, I believe, the record for points for a rookie defenseman of his age. Let me uh, confirm the amount. I mean, yeah, in his first season, he had 28 and 44, mm-hmm. which, which is, is an outstanding ratio. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, there are also people like Matt Lashoff down this list a little bit who didn't earn in that much. Yeah, and, and also, I think uh, Slava Voinov should have been on the list somewhere. Tyson Berry was the year after this the year after mm-hmm. 2010 2011 he would have been on the list so it just it seemed like a bit of an arbitrary endpoint and if you extend it you know to include even a couple more people it changes it dramatically right because i don't think anyone thinks that rasmus sandin is on track to be a norse winner we think okay he could probably be a good second pair defenseman yeah so that, yeah it was know, like that's good disappointing but... <laughs> in that sense because it seemed very sensationalized it did and you know i think it's a little bit of just, I think that this is something that a lot of stats-minded people kind of just have to learn to live with, and I didn't enjoy it, especially the first time I did the top 25, where I'm like, what do I have to work with here? Because I'm not a scout, I don't go to a million junior games, or God help me, the Swedish League, or anything like that. And so you don't have the information base. You have first-hand scouting reports, and very limited data, and coach quotes, and stuff like that. And so you have to get comfortable with a level of ambiguity in your analysis that you just don't have to live with to the same extent in the NHL. Even granted, there's a ton of craziness in the NHL. And so you can say stuff like he's on track to become a number one NHL defenseman. Well, he might, but he might be on track to be a number seven NHL defenseman. Or, you know, like, I don't think that there's enough that really tells us that he's tracking that way yeah and, and so like a more yeah. rigorous way to do this is with like the prospect pcs stuff that the the old connect armies guys kind of pioneered mm-hmm. and this seemed like a very low rent version of that yeah so and anyway like i, I it's so much more fun when we would just dunk on specter or like yeah. someone i just i don't even like um but i i you know I, I guess it's only fair when we say we we didn't think that this was quite up to scratch and it's not of the quality of his usual work which i i generally like so yeah i'm afraid that i didn't think that was a good take <laughs> yeah and, and similarly so this one's actually kind of a bit relevant to the leafs because it, it's a take from allison lucan who who wrote for the athletic about the columbus blue jackets and and wrote uh, a blog piece for first ohio battery uh which i assume is a blue jackets blog uh about the blue jackets power play which is titled, you know, The Many Benefits of Deploying Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski on the Same Power Play Unit. So as we covered, uh, the power play of Columbus is, is really, really bad. And like most teams, they, they do use a one three one as their primary setup. Um, and this argues that they should put Jones and Wierenski together. And um, the, the it's worth noting that they are experimenting with this in practice, how much of it you know, turns out to be the case when they get a power play for real in the qualifying round. We'll see. But uh, so Lucan tries to make an argument that this 
keeping Wierenski and Jones together on the power play is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And to me, if you want to make this argument, where you should start with is it cannot possibly be worse than what we already have. Um, yes. And, and that's mentioned briefly in the article, but one of the things that they talk about is kind of quote-unquote proven results. And, and they cite um, a brief period where the two were on the same power play unit and it bore results. And there's a couple uh, clips, a game against Detroit and a game against... Um, let me just click the clip here and see who it's against. It's against Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Where the Jones-Wierenski power play scores and, you know, it looks nice. And that sounds all good, except you realize when you watch these plays, these are five on threes. <laughs> mm. both, both the video clips are five on threes. Um, and it's worth noting, it is obviously far, far easier to score on a five on three versus a five on four. The, the movement patterns are completely different because there's one less person on the ice. It, it, there's almost no way to compare the two. They are very, very different states. So to yeah. me, those clips don't really hold any value at all the next thing that she argues is that when these two are on the power play together they tend to rove more they're not as tethered to the point and that is a that makes sense right to some degree um when, when jones and Wierenski are the sole defenseman on the power play they are basically at the point and they they both bomb some shots Wierenski more so than jones um but at when they're together at five on four, they move around a bit. But the sample of them together at five on four, according to this graphic that she has there from HockeyViz, is 28 minutes. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of time at all. And in that time, they've taken 28 shots, 28 shot attempts. Now, that's not actually all that impressive. Um, the Leafs average around 60 shot attempts per, uh, per game at, or at, sorry, on a rate basis, the Leafs average as many shot attempts as minutes just generally Mm -hmm. right and that's at five on five five on four like 60 shot attempts per 60 minutes is not good at all and no because you should be shooting more you should be controlling play in the other zone you have the possession of the puck so often um Mm -hmm. so yeah that's very unconvincing to me and i actually i looked into the data on this and you know, it's not, they're not particularly good from an expected goals point of view either. And I, I'm not saying that the data has to be the be all and end all here, because we've talked about how at five on four and on the power play in general, teams can do things that um, create puck movement and create lanes and opportunities that are not currently captured in public expected goals models. But you have to argue that that's the case, right? If, if, if it doesn't leap off the stat sheet, you have to argue to me, here's the video that shows why this is actually good. And the two video clips are of a five on three, which is essentially completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it, it was, I, I can get on board with the idea of it because, you know, you could just say, look, they don't have many talented forwards and Renski and Jones are two of the only talented guys on the team. I think that's a justifiable argument to, to some extent, but I think the, the, the article overstated its case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To be clear, I find the idea appealing and, you know, I like the idea of analysis that, you know, incorporates video clips and data. And I think a lot of people do, you know, I, we saw a lot of people that were favorably impressed by this article because it's the kind of analysis they want to see. It's just, unfortunately, I, I don't think the premises were quite proven 
to yeah. that extent. And, you know, that's unfortunate. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm not saying I think it's a bad idea. A and again, you know, I, I, I would much rather have a kick at Steve Simmons or someone who I don't think is at all a good analyst or something. You know, I, I think that this is a an interesting point to make, but I don't think it was quite made out there. Yep. I, that pretty much summarizes how I feel about it. All right. So with that said, I think we can, we can wrap it up here, right? Yep. Okay. Sounds good. So we will be back. Um, I guess we'll try and do podcasts, uh, timed with the game so we can react to each game um you know shortly after it happens and then have a podcast up uh so we will be deviating from the usual sunday schedule while this goes on we're, we're trying to figure things out last year we just kind of kept it on sundays and it just happened that every single time we were recording a podcast uh boston won the previous game so yeah, it, it was depressing yeah it was it was a real bummer <laughs> um yeah. so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure things out as we go. Um, as always, you can catch all Mind of Fulderman stuff at pensionpenpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFulderman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a couple, or actually not in a couple weeks. We'll see you very soon. And hopefully we're discussing good Leafs news when that happens. So see you then.